Well, good morning, Lighthouse Church. My name's Tyler, a friend of Eric, friend of the community, and I'm thankful to just lift Jesus high with you guys this morning. So why don't we stand to worship together? Jesus, we just want to make much of you in this place today. Be at the center of our praise, Lord, as we give you highest praise. Sing this. Sing, I love you, Lord. As the heavens roll 
there was a moment there was a moment when the sky lit up a flash of light breaking through when all was lost when all was lost he crossed eternity the king of life the king of life was on the moon for in a dark cold tomb where our lord was laid one miraculous breath and we're forever changed we're forever
give you highest praise in this place, Lord. You give life. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great
we do we come today to bow at your feet to sit at your throne and give you glory so lord just raising us pure hearts to lift pure praise and high praise to you lord we just sing today that you're worthy you are worthy you are worthy all hail we sing and so lord today teach us lead us guide us to be students of your way of your love for this world, and to teach how to lift praise, how to lift worship to you, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, Tyler. Um, for those of you, and probably most of you haven't met, this is Tyler. He's the, the worship leader at Genesis Collective, which is a church that is actually going to begin meeting across the street on Sunday afternoon. So 
Love you. Really grateful that you are part of our community. Love you, brother. And, and that's what I love. I mean, honestly, I love the fact that God has entrusted our church with uh, a building that we can be generous with because at the end of the day, uh, we are all part of the same church. And this is just an expression of that. He is blessing us this morning with the gift that God has given him, obviously, uh, of worshiping, worshiping with, and leading us in that while... For those of you who are kind of wondering, no, Shelly is still our worship leader. She has just had shoulder surgery this week. And so she is in the process of healing. It's probably going to take a couple of weeks. Uh, and let me just take a moment and, and lift her up before we dive in. Father God, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for the ways that you meet us and lead us. And we even thank you for the men and women who have studied to be able to do surgery on our bodies. We lift up Shelly right now to you. We pray that she would continue to heal quickly and rapidly, and for those others in our church body right now that are at home recuperating or, or fighting sickness or simply trying to avoid getting sick, we lift them up, and we're so grateful that we get to gather even over the internet. Now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help yourself to this time. Jesus, in your name, amen. Uh, just a couple of things I want to let you know about. We are two weeks away from Easter, which is crazy. And, and I have to admit that we have some making up to do because last year was anticlimactic Easter. I told you last week where I was like, I finished and, and, and there was nothing because tech people don't ever clap. <laughs> Unless you call them out and then they do, right? So this year we have some making up to do. Good Friday is, we have one service at 7 p.m. And I got to tell you guys, I'm really excited. I just got to write the message this week and I cannot wait to share it with you because it was one that God kind of downloaded for me and I'm like, oh man, I can't wait. So, and, and quite honestly, Good Friday is probably one of my top three favorite gatherings that we have all year anyway. So you don't want to miss that, both in person in here, as well as live streaming it at 7 p.m. at lighthousecommunity.com. Secondly, Easter, always our most crowded. We, this is a time where people who would not normally step foot into church are willing to accept an invitation from you. So please, as you guys have been cultivating relationships in your spheres of influence, this is the time to make that invite. Come to church with me or come over to my house. We'll do brunch together and we'll watch it together. This is a great opportunity, and just so you guys know, we recognize that COVID's not gone, so that's why we're going to have two services, so that we can maintain our, our kind of distance between our rows, but at the same time gather together, so we have a 9 a.m. service and an 11 a.m. service. We will have children's ministry at both, and when I say children's ministry, I mean that. We're not just doing childcare across the street. They have a really fun opportunity to actually be prepared to get to tell, tell you the Easter story at the end of their time together with some, with, with some uh, resurrection eggs that they're going to put together and be able to bring home. So you don't want to miss that. Your kids won't want to miss that. We just want to know when you're coming and when you're inviting people. So for those of you who are here, if you already haven't filled this out, you probably got a card when you came in, which service you planning on coming, who are you going to invite with you just so we can be prepared. For those of you who don't know, or don't care which service you come to, 9 or 11, may I just ask you to consider coming to the 11, because my guess is, for a lot of the people that don't normally step foot into church, 9 o'clock will probably be the default for them. And so for those of you who are willing, sleep in an extra hour, have some breakfast, actually take time to brush your teeth rather than just putting your face mask on, 
and then come and join us, all right? So with that, um, and, and by the way, if you're at home and you're, you're planning on coming, you can just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and let us know as well. All right, with that, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 4, because today we are going to we are going to come to the end of a story that we started telling three weeks ago. And it's a story that certainly to the, the readers of John's gospel would have been, sounded audacious to their ears. Because it's a story about Jesus leading his little band of disciples into a, a region they never would have chosen to go. A region that all good Jews avoided like the plague. I'm talking about the region of the Samaritans. But not only that... Jesus saw somebody that society, his society, would have told him stay as far away from as possible, and instead of submitting to those social norms, he moved right to her and began to interact with her. And of course, I'm talking about the Samaritan woman that he meets at a well, but I love that about Jesus because it's not the only time he does that, where he kind of steps across social boundaries. He does it all the time. I don't think he really cared as much about them as we tend to care about them. He wasn't as interested in drawing boundary markers as we have a tendency to do. Now, I want us to just for a moment though, I want us to kind of consider uh, a little bit about this woman's story. We've already talked a lot about it. We don't know a lot about this woman and these are things that Jeff has already pointed out. What do we know about her? We know three things. We know her gender, right? We know that she is a she. We know that her nationality, that she is a Samaritan. Any one of those two things would have kept Jesus or should have kept Jesus far away from her. But the third detail that we learn about this woman isn't her name, isn't her age, it isn't what she does for a living. What we learn about this woman is her broken past, the relationships that are behind her. We learn that she's been married five times, divorced five times. Now she's living with a man who isn't her husband, right? And I just want you to put yourself in her sandals for a moment. How would you feel if your identity was boiled down to your broken past relationships? <laughs> How would you feel about that? Because that's the case with her. And I'm not just talking about what has been handed down to us through history because it's recorded in Scripture. I'm talking literally about how she was perceived in her own town, real time. In her own town and in her own time, her broken relationships defined her. At least that is what the, the conclusion we draw based upon what she chooses to do, namely... She chooses to come to the well to draw water at high noon during the heat of the day as opposed to coming in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. That's when everybody else was coming to draw water. But for her, enduring the heat of the day was far more comfortable than enduring the judging stares of her fellow villagers, enduring the whispered judgment that they thought was under their breath and quiet enough that she couldn't hear, but you know she heard. And for her, she'd rather come in the middle of the day when nobody else was out, when everybody else was taking a nap at home. That's when she's coming. Because for her, she had begun to identify with that brokenness in her past. 
that had begun to shape her, at least shape her, her, her understanding of herself. It had begun to kind of constrict her and constrain the way that she interacted. And I just have a question for you. How many of us can I identify with this woman? And I don't mean how many of you have been divorced five times and are now living with somebody who's not your spouse. Not that specifically, but how many of us identify ourselves or have felt identified by the brokenness in our past, by our past mistakes? How many of us feel that when people look at us, maybe it's our family or, or, or the, peop- the, the place that we came from or, or the people that we're in life with right now, that when they look at you, they don't see you. They, they see the messiness of your past. They see the mistakes you've made and they draw conclusions about you. I know that I have spent way too much of my life living under the shadow of what I thought other people thought about me. And then the question becomes, well, what do we do with that? When you feel like people don't know you or don't care to know you for who you are, but rather for what you've done, and this can go both ways, right? Sometimes it's the, the, the things that we've done positively, that should define us, or we hope it will, but really deep down we know that it's the mistakes. How do we respond to that? How do we get out from under that? Well, I I think that probably, if we're honest, different people respond to it differently based upon the way that they're wired. Some of us will, will be compelled to action because of the specter of of being judged. We want to do anything and everything to prove that we are not the sum total of our mistakes, and so we run, run, run to try to show people that we're different. Other people can kind of slip back into despair and kind of hide in the shadows, feeling like I will never, ever get out from under the shadow of this shameful thing. And then still others <laughs> will kind of own it. Like, hey, if I can't ever get out from under the shadow of it, then at least I'm going to make it work for me and I'm going to make it look fabulous, right? I, I think of Paul's words in Philippians where he said, their glory is in their shame. They literally find their identity in the things that they honestly should be ashamed of. Now, if I'm honest with you, I have spent the majority of my life living in that first camp when there are things where I feel like I'm being judged based upon what I've done and I don't like that, then I've allowed that to motivate me to action. I spent most of my 20s and my 30s running from this deep-seated fear that I wasn't enough, particularly wasn't enough for my father. And that became the motivation that drove me to action, to performance. I would read thousand-page biographies about dead people because he read them, and I wanted something for him to be proud of me. I, I, I tried to be really good at sports because I thought that would make him proud. I tried to, I, heck, I went and started working at his law office. That was a mistake. Um, because I wanted him to be proud of me. I went in, I thought I was going to become an attorney because he was an attorney, and I wanted his blessing. This is all typical firstborn stuff, guys. So I get that. And these are things that God has worked on in my heart, but I recognize that that was a motivator for me through much of my life. I was running from the shadow of who I thought people thought I was. 
and that shaped who I was becoming, or at least how I was acting. Now, when it comes to this woman, she's not, she's not the kind of person who shame drives her into action. She goes the opposite direction. Shame drives her into hiding. Her shame, how people see her, how she has begun to internalize that and see herself, drives her into hiding so much so that she will come in the middle of the day and endure the scorching sun just to avoid the crowds just to avoid being reminded of the things that she should be ashamed of. But what I love about this story is that Jesus once again shows us that the kind of boundary markers, the kind of things that we use to define others or even to define ourselves, those don't actually dictate the way he sees us. He does not view this woman as the sum total of her mistakes. He doesn't view you as the sum total of your mistakes. But nor does he allow her the ability to hide. If anything, he goes right to it and he calls her out of hiding. Now, we have already spent two weeks unpacking this story, so I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But I do want to point out a couple of things in, in, in sections that we've already covered prior to getting to kind of the heart of the passage that we're going to unpack today, because it's really helpful to giving us some context for this. So go ahead and go to verse 15. Just painting the picture. This woman walks up with her jar to the, the well, high noon. Jesus is sitting at the well all by himself. He sends his disciples into town to get food for the rest of their journey. So Jesus is alone. This woman walks up, and Jesus asks her if she will help him get something to drink because he doesn't have a, a pail or a pitcher to drop into the well to get the water. She's kind of shocked that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan, let alone a single male speaking to a single female. In this society, both of those were boundaries that were uncrossable. And Jesus is just blown through both of them. Moreover, to take a drink out of her water pitcher, that's kind of an intimate thing to happen, and, and so it's shocking to her. But then Jesus uses that as a teaching opportunity. He says, hey, listen, I'm asking you for water, but if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water because I know where you can get living water, water that will well up into you, that will provide life that is really life. And this woman, like so many others before her, takes him literally and thinks he's talking about a source of water that will help her to never have to come back to this well, never have to make this long, uncomfortable journey. And so in verse 15, the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. But then Jesus does something unexpected. He shines a spotlight right on her area of shame right upon the very thing that has been driving her into hiding and driving her to, to come here and hide in plain sight in the heat of the day. He told her, go back and call your husband and then come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband at all. So what you've said is quite true. Now for just a moment. Imagine that you are in this woman's place. You have come at a time when you hope you won't see anyone. 
but you run into some stranger. He's obviously Jewish. He doesn't seem to care about the boundaries that society draws. And now all of a sudden, he has exposed your deepest, darkest secret. How would you respond if you were in her position? <laughs> would you turn tail and run? Would you get angry and yell at him? Would you deny it? Or would you deflect? Try to come up with some red herring to kind of focus the energy somewhere else. I found that that is a very natural human tendency to try to refocus the energy somewhere else. I saw it probably most clearly when I uh, began teaching at a place called Olive Crest. It was a full lockdown facility for kids who were in the system. And I specifically, this was my very first teaching assignment, I think I was probably 24 years old at the time. I was teaching children in a classroom that had just been removed from their families. They were living at this facility, and I had everywhere from first graders through junior hires in the same classroom. They're like, Eric, you got this. Go for it, right? That's why you guys can't do anything in here to throw me off, right? Steve, you can fall asleep all you want. I'm not afraid you're going to try to stab me with a pencil. So go ahead. Do your worst. That's how I got jumped into teaching. But anyway, when I would interact with these kids, this, this happened all the time. I would ask a question of the group as we were doing something together. A, a lot of times they were just doing packets because they were all at different educational levels. But I, was, I would ask a question of the group. Crickets. So then I would specifically look at one kid, Bill. Do you know the answer to it? Bill doesn't know the answer to it. So now he gets uncomfortable, right? I have suddenly shined a spotlight on an area of insecurity in him. He doesn't know the answer. He feels stupid. He internalizes, I am stupid, but I don't want anybody else in the class to know I'm stupid. So what does Bill do? He deflects. Maybe he, he says, oh, he threw something at me, and he points at somebody else to distract in that. Maybe he swipes his book off of the table and says, I don't even want to talk about this is stupid. Maybe as one kid did, he picks up his desk and literally throws it through the wall, right? Again, I'm not afraid you're going to pick up a chair. I hope you won't. This happened all the time because for them, when they felt exposed, that part in their brain, that fight or flight kicked in, and for them, the best thing to do was to distract from the source of their shame. And in their minds, if they threw a fit, I would focus on the fit and I would forget to, to draw attention to the fact that they didn't know the answer. That is a very human tendency. We do it too. I bet if you took a little bit of time and considered some of the conflict you've had in the last 24 hours, you might even recognize some of the echoes of that even in your own life. Those of you who are raising kids, this happens all the time. And that's exactly how this woman responds. When Jesus shines a spotlight on her shame, rather than leaning into it, rather than sitting in it, rather than fleeing, she tries to deflect. Verse 19, Sir, this woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, if you feel exposed... 
the best way to hide is to bring up a very well-known theological argument and focus on that, right? So, is it, is it Mount Gerizim here for us that we Samaritans believe we have to worship on, or is it the temple in Jerusalem? Where do we worship? But Jesus isn't going to allow her to slip back into the shadows by hiding behind a theological argument. He's going to call her out of hiding. And he's not doing it, by the way, because he wants to rub her nose in it. He's doing it because he does not see her the way she sees herself. He doesn't see her the way that her society has labeled her. And so he is going right to the heart of it and calling her out of that so she can recognize that she is still loved, that she's not the sum total of her mistakes, but also so that he can restore her back to the original purpose that God created her in as an image bearer in the first place to do, namely to be his ambassador of hope. So he's calling her out out of love, even though she does not feel very loved in this moment, and she's trying to hide behind a theological argument, and Jesus won't let her hide again. And so he basically looks at her and says, hey, it's not about that mountain or that mountain. It's not about place. Because what Jesus understood that it takes us a long time to get is that it's never about a building. You, people are always far more sacred than places to Jesus. Always far more sacred to, to Jesus than places. You could be standing in the most sacred plot of ground, the most sacred building on this planet. You take your pick. Is it the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Some of us have gotten to go there and see that. Is it there? For, for a Muslim, that might be, you know, Mecca. For others, it might be Washington. You know, whatever the most holy place in your mind is. Think about it for a second. And when Jesus looks at you, he would say that the person on your left and your right are always more sacred to him than any building and any plot of ground. Jesus knew this, and so he looks at this woman and he says, it's not about a place. True worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth, right? The Holy Spirit will enable you to begin to grasp who God is in relationship to you, and that fear of God will begin to shape the way you approach him. And when you worship in this way, then you will be a genuine worshiper. Well, the woman, most of what he just said went right over her head. She didn't understand the, she doesn't understand the gravity of what he's just laid out. I still don't fully understand the gravity of what he's just laid out, so I can assure you that she probably didn't get it. So the woman says, well, I know that the Messiah, that God's anointed redeemer, that in, in Hebrew it's Messiah, in Greek it's Christ, that's not Jesus' last name, it, it's a title, meaning the anointed one of God. I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. And then Jesus does something astounding. Jesus, who deflects so often when people try to label him, says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In other words, he does with this woman what he never did with his disciples, coming right out and saying it what he never did when he was on Temple Mount clearing out the temple, he, he, what, what he never did when he sat down with Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin leaders, he never came straight out and said, I'm the Messiah, but here with this woman he does. Why? It's a really good question. And quite honestly, I don't fully know the answer, but here's what I do know. It says something about Jesus. 
Specifically, it says something about how Jesus views this woman. She is not the sum total of the things that she is ashamed of. She is not beyond redemption. And he loves her. And he is inviting her back into relationship. And back to that original purpose that God created her to do. Namely, to be his representative. His ambassador of hope. To her own sphere of influence. Which happens to be that Samaritan village that the disciples are right now walking out of, and they see Jesus having this conversation with a Samaritan and a woman, and oh my goodness, what is he doing? This is social suicide. I'm so glad we're not in Israel because if anybody saw him doing this right now, they would just be disgusted. And, and, and did we just hear him tell her that he's the Messiah? What is going on? And I'm sure that the look on their faces when they saw Jesus having this interaction with her probably matched the kind of shock that, that this woman felt, both that the fact that Jesus was talking to her, that she was called out, and what he has just claimed, namely that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And there is so much emotion swirling through her head that she doesn't know what to do, but she knows that she's overwhelmed by it. And so we now pick up the story in verse 28. Leaving her water jar this woman ran back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I did. If you ever question that this woman identified with her brokenness, the fact that she tells them that he has basically laid out everything she ever did suggests that everything she ever did refers to her brokenness. That has become the base of her identity. Come see this man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town, and they made their way toward her. I, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the change that I see in this gal. I, I see this a lot as I read through the Gospels, that people are radically impacted by their interaction with Jesus. We see it with the disciples. We'll talk perhaps a little bit about that come Easter Sunday. The change that seeing Jesus had upon people who are otherwise terrified. But look at the difference that this woman, I, we know her. We, we know that she's so ashamed of her past, that she comes at the noonday sun, and yet this woman turns around and goes running back to town. The very people that she's been avoiding, suddenly she's proclaiming, come meet the, this guy, he could be the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. And I just can't help but, you know, consider what that must say about what she's feeling right now. Her passion, at least momentarily, has completely eclipsed her shame. Her excitement, her wonder, who is this guy and how did he do this, totally overshadows her desire to remain in the shadows. Have you ever met somebody like that? Met somebody who, after meeting Jesus, is so radically different, they are they are on fire for him. It doesn't matter where they're at. They're talking about Jesus. It doesn't matter how the conversation starts. It is going to end up being about Jesus. 
I, many of us, I'm sure, have met people like this. Some of us have been that person at this period in our life. But we know how that goes, right? Time tempers that. And that, that bonfire of excitement begins to burn down a little bit. And we begin to get more comfortable with just, you know, going to church on Sunday or watching church on Sunday. Maybe every once in a while posting a, a verse on, on social media. And that's about the extent of it. But not this gal. She is, she is telling everybody that she knows her entire sphere of influence are going to hear what's going on. But now let's consider for a moment what she's telling them. What is she sharing? Because I think that this is perhaps the single biggest impediment I have seen to the way that we have a tendency to share our faith. When it comes to us telling people about Jesus, probably the biggest impediment is this fear that I don't know enough. <laughs> I haven't been to grad school to get the tools to answer my own questions. I'm not studied in the apologetics of it. If they ask me a question, I'm going to look like a fool because I'm not going to know the answer. And we allow that to be the impediment that keeps us quiet. But consider this woman for a moment. She has only met Jesus for five, maybe ten minutes. We're not really 100% certain how long that conversation goes, but it's not very long. And most of what he said to her went right over her head. She doesn't have all the answers. She only has one thing her story, right? The one thing she has is the story of her interaction with Jesus, the story of this man that she met at a well that told her everything she'd ever done. He shined a spotlight on my shame, and she's willing to say that out loud. Could he be the Messiah? She's not even certain yet. But what she knows, she shares. And this prompts the people from her village to come and check it out for themselves. And as we're going to find out, it's enough. Let's keep reading. Jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. So, so there's the, the, the faintest sparks of belief because of what she's sharing. And what was her testimony? What was her story? He told me everything I ever did. That's shorthand, for this is the way that this guy knew me. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And shockingly, Jesus and his disciples stayed for two whole days in that village where most Jews, if they found themselves there, would try to get through it as quickly as possible. Imagine for a moment a city that you would not normally want to go in. Now you're in that city. You don't have a car. You can't just drive through. Most of us, sun is going down. I want to get out of this town as quickly as possible. I'm going to call an Uber. Not Jesus. Hey, will you stay with us? Will you come over and have dinner? Absolutely. The disciples at this point are going, what on earth is going on? Jesus stayed with them. And because of his words, many more believed. Notice this. This woman didn't save anybody. She couldn't save anybody. She didn't even fully know who Jesus was. All she knew was her story 
and how to find him. She pointed in the direction of Jesus, and they went looking for themselves. And when they met him, and they spent time with him, that was ultimately what changed. And even the ones that her testimony kind of convinced them there was something about this guy that's worth looking into after having spent time with him, that became the foundation of their faith, not her testimony. Verse 42, ultimately at the end of these two days, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Those are some big words. We real, now we know for ourselves, it's not based upon what you've told us. You said you tasted and saw that there was something different about this guy. You pointed us in the right direction. We've seen for ourselves that he's not just a, a wise Jewish teacher, not even just a nice Jew. He is the Savior that we have been waiting for. I think it's important for us to remember that we cannot and never will save a single person. It doesn't matter if it's your own kids. It doesn't matter if it's your parents. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse. It doesn't matter if it's somebody on your, your sports team. It doesn't matter if it's somebody at work that you have been discipling for a long, long time. You can not save them. You can pray for them. You can share your testimony, your story with them. But ultimately, all, all you can do is point them to Jesus and encourage them to taste and see for themselves whether he is who you have experienced him to be. And they will need to see this for themselves. And it may take them a very long time to get there. But when they finally come to taste and see that, then their faith will not be resting upon your testimony. It will be resting upon their own experience. I would imagine that all of us in here who have tasted and seen that Jesus, our faith isn't resting any longer upon our parents' faith. That kind of a faith is a weak faith. That's the kind of faith that I carried with me into college because I was raised as a Christ follower. Carried with it, me with it until my sophomore year of college when I was living in my fraternity house now for the first time out from under my parents' roof, out from under my parents making the decisions, and for the first time in my life, I could be anybody I wanted to be. I could be just like my fraternity brothers. I could live with the same values that they exhibited, or I could embrace the, the values that had been kind of modeled for me in my home. But if I was going to do that, I was going to do it for myself, not for my parents. And that was the year that my religion crumbled and my relationship with Jesus began. It began slowly, but it was a powerful trans transition for me when I began to taste and see why Jesus is good, not simply hear that he is good. And there are some of you who are still living off of borrowed faith, and quite honestly for you, your story is still being written. You have yet to taste and see that Jesus is good. And for you, I simply say, don't take my word for it. Don't take your parents' word for it. Samuel, Matthew, don't take your mom's word for it. Ethan, Grayson, don't take my word for it. Those of you who have been dragged here kicking and screaming, 
or for some reason you clicked on this link and you've, you've watched this far, do not take anybody's word for it. Come and see for yourself who Jesus is. Put his words into action. Jesus said, if you are my disciples, then you'll do what I say. Then you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Jesus is not just a savior who punches our ticket to heaven and, and, and gets us out of hell. If Jesus is going to be our savior, he is saving us not just from something, but to something. He is saving us to a life of following him. That's why his invitation was never pray this prayer. His invitation was always follow me. That's an invitation to a discipleship relationship. And if you say yes to Jesus, if you say yes to what he did on the cross for you, then what you're saying yes to is, yes, I want your values to shape my values. I don't want the values of this world to shape them anymore. I want to be a reflection of your heart. Now, obviously, I'll be the first to say I'm not a perfect reflection of his heart. And I desperately need the Holy Spirit to work in my heart but it begins with us coming and finding Jesus for ourselves. And if that's you this morning, where you recognize, I have been holding him at arm's length, I'm cool with calling him my Savior, I don't really want him my Lord, then I would implore you, take that first step. Choose to follow him. As we are reading through the Gospel of John or other Gospels, pay attention to how Jesus responds and then, then do it. Allow him to disciple you. Allow him to be the Lord of your life. See for yourself if what he is saying is truth. And then for those of us who have tasted and seen, for those of us who have been following him haltingly, there have been moments of doubt, particularly in this last year, there have been some moments where we got completely off of our rhythms and we forgot to spend time in his word. No, we could beat ourselves up. We could be ashamed. Remember, Jesus doesn't really place the same amount of weight on that as we do. He loves you. He pursues us even when we hide in the shadows. So come out of the shadows. Run to him. But also consider what the most powerful tool that you have for advancing the kingdom of God into the spheres of influence where God has uniquely planted you. It is not apologetics. It is not head knowledge. It is not a biblical degree. The most powerful tool you have apart from prayer is your story. How have you experienced Jesus? Where did he find you? What has he redeemed you out of? What has he redeemed you to? How have you tasted and seen him to be real in your life? Those are the kind of questions I want to encourage you to grapple with. But I also recognize that many of us, if we had an opportunity to share our story, we wouldn't know where to start. And so I want to, part of my job as a pastor is to equip you to be able to give an answer for the hope that you have in you when somebody asks. Toward that end, this week, uh, we've, we've put together a what's your story worksheet. It should take maybe 20 minutes it's just got a bunch of questions, like, for instance, what was your life like before you met Jesus? In what ways you, had you made a mess of it? I bet you can think of some things, all right? 
What methods for improving your life did you try that didn't work? There's just some questions to get you started thinking down the pathway of where has Jesus redeemed me from and what is he redeeming me to and how have I tasted and seen? Spend 20 minutes on it. Write out, it doesn't have to be perfect, just write out your story. Because here's the thing, we live in a day and an age, if this last year has shown us anything, it's that people will argue with just about anything. We'll argue about the color of a dress, Dagnab, but somebody, I mean, that, that's ridiculous, whatever. But you get it, I mean, we'll argue about literally anything, but the one thing they cannot argue about is your story. Because it's personal, it's your story. So that's why it's the best place to start. For those of you who are here, we have hard copies we're going to give you when you leave here. For those of you who are not, I'm going to email you this. Uh, for those of you who get our, our regular emails that when we send them out, if you don't regularly get our emails, all you need to do is email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and let us know that you would like to be on that email list and I'll make sure that you get it. Um, Kathy, can you make sure that anybody who emails in will get a copy of this later? Because I will send this to you in about an hour, okay? Take 20 minutes. Work through the worksheet. Write out your testimony, your story, and then look for an opportunity to share it. Maybe you practice by sharing it with a spouse. Maybe you practice by sharing it with your kids. Heck, email me, eric at lighthousecommunity.com. I want to hear your story. So if you write it out, share it with me. But don't keep it a secret because knowing your story and not sharing your story is like, is like knowing where there was toilet paper a year ago this time. <laughs> Keeping that information to yourself is not just unhelpful, it's downright selfish, right? This is something that God has placed in your hands that he can use to advance his kingdom so let me right now, as I invite Tyler to come on back up and we're going to respond, let me just pray over us that God would very clearly help us to recognize our story and then give us eyes to recognize opportunities to share it. Father God, I thank you for the ways that you look at us because they're not the same ways we look at ourselves. You don't judge us nearly as harshly as we tend to judge ourselves you don't write us off like we have had a tendency to write others off and even sometimes to write ourselves off. I thank you for the reminder that you use imperfect people like the Samaritan woman and like us and our stories to radically transform people's lives, not because we, we save them ourselves, but simply because our story is the key that unlocks their, their heart to wonder. I wonder what it is about this person that they feel peace in the midst of this craziness. I wonder what it's about this person that they have hope even though they're dying of cancer. I wonder why they can smile when the world seems to be spinning out of control. Where is this hope coming from? God, would you help us to know our own personal answer to the question of where the hope is coming from. And then would you give us the eyes to recognize opportunities to share it so that they will come seeking you out and they will taste and see for themselves that you are good.
that you are worth following as their Lord. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's worship together. Why don't we stand together while we worship? Sing, you were the word at the beginning. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord, most high. You hid in glory in creation. He's now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ my King. What a beautiful name it is, and nothing compares to this, what a beautiful name heaven without us.
What a powerful name is the name of sin. You have no rival. You have no rival. You have no equal. Oh, now and forever, God, you reign. Yes. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Make me a vessel 
Yes, I should turn it on instead of turning it off. There's something about a, a new song that allows those of us who have sung songs so many times to hear with new ears. And this morning, Tyler, as you were just singing that song, I couldn't help but think that every single one of us here is a grape that God wants to turn into new wine as a holy communion to the world. And some of us have gotten crushed this year. Some of us are in the process of being crushed even now. The boot heel of life is on us and it is squeezing the joy out of us. For others of us, we have been stored in our homes for this last year, afraid to come out and we feel like we're just sitting there fermenting. That's what wine does. There are seasons of waiting as something happens inside of us. But ultimately, the purpose of that wine is to flow into this world and to bring new hope. That's my prayer for us, is that we would not look at what we have been walking through over this last year or what we are even in the midst of walking through right now with hatred toward it, 
with a feeling that God is absent from it because we've been suffering or because we've been lonely, but rather that he has been in it with us the whole time. He has allowed it to happen and he will redeem it and use it in ways that we could have never imagined. And this morning, Lighthouse community, I just encourage you to consider as we sing this song one more time, there's power in the crushing, that we would hold our hands up almost like we are offering our very selves, our circumstances, our families, our hopes, our dreams, and our deepest fears and failings up before him and just say, help yourself to my life, to do in me what it is you want to do. Let's continue to worship. Singing the crushing. Oh, in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making wine in the soil, and in the soil.
we submit our lives to you. You are not only the Savior of our souls, you are the Lord of our lives. And if you willingly died for us, then we choose to willingly live for you. So whatever it is you need to do to shape us and mold us into vessels, whether it's the potter's wheel or the kiln, whatever you need to do to make new wine out of us, whether it is crushing us, letting us sit in solitude and ferment, or pouring us and letting us breathe for all to see, help yourself to us and so glorify yourself. Use us according to your will to advance your kingdoms. Use our stories. Use our resources. Use our hopes and our fears, our successes and our shame, however you wish. We submit our lives to you, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. If you have prayer requests, yeah, yeah we can clap. I, I am just... If you have prayer requests, you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you are watching online and you want to give, you can do so from lighthousecommunity.com, our website. If you know when you are going to be able to come to our Easter service, whether it's the 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock, let us know. If you are here and you want to drop your, your prayer requests in the offering, it's in the back. And if you have an offering that you want to bring, you can put it in the boxes in the back. But Lighthouse Community, you have so much to, more to offer than just your stuff. Your story is your act of worship. Do not keep that to yourselves. Let God use it in other people's lives. Have a wonderful week.